0: Well, hey, good morning. I had to wait for the footsteps. That's my favorite part of that video right there. I love that. Hey, my name is Jake, and I am a pastor here, and uh, we, uh, we're just getting started. So I want to say welcome to our little baby church and being the fact that we are just starting out. Um, I got to confess to you right on the front end, I've been in ministry for 17 years, and I have never done an Easter Sunday service. This will be my very, very first one. So, um, yeah, well... Uh, Great. Now there's pressure. All right. Now there's an expectation. All right. Well, anyway, um, glad you're here. Uh, Funny thing about Easter Sunday is um, you already know what I'm going to talk about. And so there's no surprises. And if you just show up kind of like, you know, I just come every Easter and I don't come back. That's the one time I come. I know why you don't come back. You don't come back because every time you come, we're talking about the same thing over and over and over again. And it's always, always the same thing. We're talking about that. So I don't want to... I'm going to write from the very beginning. There's no surprises. We are going to be talking about Easter on Easter Sunday. And so there's we at. But let me do this. I want to, and this is very important to me, I want to lay all my cards out on the table right from the very beginning. I want to shoot straight with you. I'm going to let you know exactly what my intentions are and what I'm hoping for as it comes to this talk and what we're doing this morning, and that is this. I am hoping that if you don't know Jesus or you at some point in your time have taken and walking away from him or you're stepped away from the faith and you are not a follower of him, today it is my genuine, honest, sincere hope that you would consider becoming a follower of Christ. That is what I'm shooting for. I'm not gonna pull any punches. I'm not gonna do that. My hope is that you would think about becoming a Christian uh, in spite of the fact that you know some of us, right? In spite of the fact that, uh, uh, that you maybe worked for a Christian, in spite of the fact that you've seen some of the crazy stuff on TV about Christians, um, in spite of the fact that you got pain in your life, in spite of the fact that maybe you prayed a prayer and God didn't seem to answer that, in spite of all that, it is my hope that you would consider following Christ today. And so here's how I'd like to play it. Here's how I'd love to do it. Let's just imagine that it's you and me. Okay, we're sitting down at some coffee shop. Uh, You've got your coffee. Maybe I bought you a muffin because I'm just nice like that. Um, I'm not uh, not into coffee, so I'm drinking a Pepsi. I'm literally just there for the conversation. So I'm there, and you say, you know what, Jake? I'm going to give you a shot. I'm going to give you 20 minutes to give me your best pitch on why I should become a Christian. I want you to give me your best shot. And if you did that, if you gave me 20 minutes... I know what I wouldn't do. I would not try and defend the history of the church because we've made a lot of mistakes. I would not try to defend the Christians, how they've treated you or mistreated you is maybe a better way to say it. Um, I definitely would say this. I wouldn't start out first thing saying that you have to become a Christian because the Bible tells you so. Because here's a crazy thing about the Bible is that there were tens of thousands of Christians even before this thing was written. And so I wouldn't start there. I would start, if you gave me a shot, with a single event. And it is the event that we are talking about today. It is this event. So just so we're clear, Easter is not the celebration of Christianity. It is not the celebration of Jesus' teachings. In fact, this you might throw something at me. It's not even the celebration of Jesus himself. Easter is the celebration of a very, very specific event. And if this event didn't happen, if this event didn't take place, there would be no Easter. And catch this, there would be no Christianity. There would be no Christianity. And so if you said, hey, Jake, you got one shot. Give it your best go. What do you want to talk about? I would say, I want to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about that because it is so fundamental to our faith. It is so pivotal in what we believe. So we're going to talk about that. There's a guy named Paul. And uh, Paul was a guy who actually saw the resurrected Jesus. So he actually saw him after he came out of the grave. And he said this about Jesus. And this is crazy. He said, if Christ had not raised or raised from the dead, then your faith or my faith or anybody's faith in Christ is worthless. That is a very, very, very heavy statement, but I will tell you this, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Wholeheartedly, I agree with that because if Jesus did not rise from the dead, he said some crazy things. A lot of people will say, hey, you know, I think Jesus was a great teacher and the moment that they say that, I realize they've never really read anything Jesus said. Is because, yeah, Jesus was good at what he taught, but what his whole focus of his ministry on was not his philosophy or his teachings. It wasn't about that. It was centered on him. It was centered on him. He said crazy things like, I am the vine. I am the way. I am the truth. It was all about him. Apparently, Jesus is pretty self-centered, you know? But he can be because he said, I am God. And so that's what he said. And so here's the thing. If he didn't rise from the dead, if he didn't rise from the dead, then our faith is worthless. So the biggest question we've got is, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Did he really rise from the dead? Did the resurrection really happen? And so we're going to spend Easter Sunday talking about that, talking about the fact. And again, if you gave me 20 minutes in a coffee shop, this is what I would talk about. And so let's start with the evidence. Let's look at what evidence is out there to the resurrection. And the first thing you'll notice is that there are a lot of witnesses A lot of witnesses, and these are people that didn't just see um, the resurrected Jesus. They actually documented that they had seen him. So it's pretty crazy. So there's a guy named Peter. He's a former fisherman. He became uh, one of the uh, disciples, and he said this. He said, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were, and here it is, catch that, eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter saw the resurrected Jesus. He saw him before he died. He saw him after he died, and then he wrote about it. There's another disciple named John. And just so you know, John is like the only disciple that was actually there when Jesus died. All the other ones scattered, but he was the one that was there, so he watched Jesus die. And then he was the first one, the first disciple, to see the empty tomb. And not only that, he was one of the first ones to actually see the resurrected Christ. And so John wrote an account. It's it's in the Gospel of John. And he wrote about what he saw, and he is an eyewitness. Probably the greatest evidence that we have that that Jesus rose from the grave is a guy named James. Now, James, for those of you who have been to church, you might know who he is. He is the half-brother of Jesus. And so how many of you actually have a brother? You You have a brother. I have two sisters. You have a brother. Yeah, there you go. Let me ask you this question. What would it take for your brother to convince you that he was the son of God? (laughs) What would it take? It literally would take your brother rising from the dead. And that's exactly the same thing with James. James is nowhere to be found in the four gospels. He's silent in there. I'm sure he was around, obviously. But we don't hear about him until the book of Acts, until the church started. And then we know that Jesus saw him and he saw Jesus. And he became a believer in the resurrection. And so it's a great piece of evidence. Jesus' half-brother even believed Jesus rose from the grave. And there's a guy named Paul. I talked about him earlier. He said this, and this is where it gets crazy. He said, for what I received, so this is what he investigated, He's what he looked into, I pass on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter. So that's Peter the fishermen we talked about, and then to the 12 disciples. And that would include, like, John who was there and all the other disciples. And then here's where it gets crazy. After that, he appeared to more than, catch this, 500. 500 of the brothers at the same time. So Jesus literally appeared to 500 people after he resurrected at the same time, most of whom are still living, and those are some key words there although some have fallen asleep, which means that they died. Now, the reason that Paul uses the words still living and it's key is because Paul was saying this. He was saying, hey, if you don't believe me that Jesus rose from the dead, then go ask them because they saw it and they will tell you what they saw. And not only that, if this was false and Paul was making it up and he was just making this whole story up, they would have called him out on it. And so Paul believes that Jesus rose from the grave. Now, here's the thing. Some of you be like, you know what, Jake? That's all wonderful. But I know that all of what you just mentioned is in God's word, right? That's found in God's word. And I don't really believe God's word. I don't believe it is the inspired word of God. And so, yeah, you can't just prove it with the Bible. Okay, well, then I won't. Let's look at Josephus. Flavius Josephus was a Jewish general who became a Roman historian. And so basically what he did is he lived around the same time that Jesus was alive, and he took notes. He was a historian and documented things. This is one of the book from the book of antiquities, book 8, chapter 3, verse 3. Here's what he said. Okay, this is what he said. And again, here you go. Um, At the time, and this is around 30 AD, there was a wise man who was called Jesus. Now you need to remember, this is not in the Bible. This is not in the Bible. This is another separate historical document. It says, And his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous, and many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate, now this is where it starts to sound familiar, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, condemned him to be crucified and to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. Here it goes. They reported so they recorded, they documented, they gave an account that he, he, we're talking about Jesus here, had appeared to them, again, eyewitnesses. These are eyewitnesses. And here's when, after the, crucif- after the crucifixion, and that he was alive. That is fascinating to me. Absolutely fascinating. Josephus, Flavius Josephus, did not become a Christian. He was not a follower of Christ. This is not in the Bible. This is a historic document that has been validated and saying that, hey, there are people who said that Jesus rose from the grave. And there are a ton of eyewitnesses, over 500. It's a huge piece of evidence to to the resurrection. But there's more evidence, so let's talk about that. One, probably the most obvious, but we don't think about it very much, is the empty tomb. And so here's what I mean by that. Uh, There's a lot of players that were involved, but everyone, the Romans, the Jewish leaders, even the disciples, all agreed on this one thing. And you know what it was? That there was an empty tomb. Not one of them walked up to the tomb and went inside and said, oh my gosh, wait, time out everyone. There he is. He's right there. I don't know how he missed the dead body, but he's right there. Nobody said that. Nobody's like, hey, the tomb is full. Nobody said that. All of them said the tomb is empty. It is completely empty. The problem was that they couldn't find the body. That was the problem. And they were all asking that question, where is the body? So the tomb was empty. Next piece of evidence. Female testimonies. And ladies, please don't throw anything at me at this point. Let me explain. Okay, the female testimony truly is another piece to this equation. The first ones that actually discovered the empty tomb were a couple ladies, right? And the reason that they were heading back to the tomb after Jesus had been crucified and buried is because a couple days before, a couple guys had taken Jesus' body, they had prepared it, they had wrapped it, and then they entombed it. And so these ladies knew that if a couple guys did this job, then it probably needed to be redone, okay? And so they're coming back, and they're going to take care of the body and preserve it and do the spices and all that kind of stuff. And so this piece of detail is critical, absolutely critical, and here's why it's critical. Because if the gospel writers could, they would have taken this piece out. They would not have put that fact into the Bible. And the reason they wouldn't is because female testimony, female, um, the first century women had no credibility back then. They actually could not testify in a Jewish court. Their word, unfortunately, although not right, did not hold any weight at that time. It just didn't. And so do you know why? Knowing that, that the gospel writers wrote that the women were the first ones to find the empty tomb? Because they were the first ones to find the empty tomb. That is the only reason that they would put it in here is because it was the truth. If they were making it up, they would have left that out. They would have said something else happened if they were making it up because it's not a convincing story. But this just testifies to the authenticity and the accuracy of the recorded accounts of the resurrection. So that is huge. That is huge. Another piece of evidence is this. Martyrs. So there were 12 disciples, right? Ten of them died for their faith. Ten of them died for what they believed. And those ten, they all, they all were tortured, they were all beaten, and they, were, they died, they were martyrs. Now, two of them that did not was, one was Judas, he killed himself, and the other one was John. He got to live to a ripe old age of who knows what, but he got to live way long. But the other ten died. Now, think about this. If those disciples all got together... And you're like, hey, we're going to come up with this crazy story. We're going to do this crazy nuts thing. And it's a big conspiracy theory. And they're making this whole thing up. And it's some lame, pa- lame prank. Then they all went to the grave with that lie. And here's the truth about this. Nobody dies for a lie. You don't get tortured and die for a lie. As soon as they're getting tortured, they would say, no, my bad. We just made this up. I know it's all funny. My bad. It's all just a joke. Um, but don't hit me anymore but they died, and nobody dies for a lie. You know how I know that? It's because when people die, what do they do? When they're on their deathbed, they confess. They confess. Check this out. In uh, in 1994, a guy named Chris Sperling, uh, he was on his deathbed at age 93, and he confessed to faking this famous picture right here. And so what it was is he was a professional model maker. And his father-in-law was angry about a situation with the paper. And so what he wanted to do is he wanted to get back at him. So he asked his son-in-law to make a model. So it was like a little submarine with a little head on it. And they went out there and they took a picture of that thing. And then they put it in the paper. And everybody for 60 years believed that this thing was true. And then Chris, on his deathbed, could not take it anymore. He could not die with the lie. And so he confessed that it was fake, that the picture was a fake. Now, of course, Lockie is real, okay? (laughs) But the picture is a fake. Listen about this guy. His name's James Washington. I know you've never heard of him. He had a heart attack and uh, he was on his deathbed and things were getting dark, things were getting difficult and he's like, I, I'm gonna pass, this is over. My time on this earth is done and he wanted to clear his conscience because a decade before he actually committed a murder and so what he did is he confessed to that murder right there on his deathbed because he didn't wanna die with that lie and so he confessed. Now, unfortunately for James is that uh, he recovered. (laughs) Had a big last-minute recovery and then was sentenced to 50 years in prison for his confession. Oh, he murdered someone. What are you owing about? (laughs) There's no oh about that. Yeah, so he confessed and you don't die with a lie. Now, finally, I I could not go on if I did not talk about, my nerdiness would just flop out if I did not talk and show you the most famous of all confessions at a deathbed. Here you are. There is another sky. Yeah, I don't think anybody knows what he said right there. <laughs> I feel like Yoda should have won an, uh, like an Oscar for that because that was amazing. Like, oh, that was crazy. So even Jedi masters do not die with a lie, okay? He had to confess that there was another Skywalker. Now, we don't know if that was Luke or that was Leia or if it was Rey, if you're one of those. Am my nerding going too far? Okay, so I'll stop right there. So who knows? But people don't die for a lie or keep a lie and the disciples did not either. In fact, the disciples did not die for a lie and they didn't even die for what they believed in. Catch this, they didn't just die for what they believed in, they died for what they believed that they saw. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection and they took it to the grave because it was true, because it was true. And even when people said, don't talk about the resurrection, they said, I can't help but talk about the resurrection because it's the most crazy thing I've ever seen in my whole entire life and it is true and there is so much evidence it's like a pile of evidence we've got martyrs we've got witnesses we've got testimonies we've got all these things there's an empty tomb and yet people still want to explain it away they still want to try to explain the resurrection away and so they come up with these theories and these ideas just because I don't want it to be real so I'm going to try to find a way for it not to be real and so here's some of those theories the first one is this, as a lot of people will say, well, it's a legend, that the, that, the, uh, that the deal with the resurrection is it didn't really happen, but just over time, how legends grow, that it just grew and it became this legend, and, um, and, and then all of a sudden, the man didn't just have a great recovery, he died, and then he was resurrected. No, it cannot be, um, it cannot be a legend, and here's why. There wasn't enough time. There wasn't enough time for legend to grow. Jesus died around 30 to 33 AD, right? The first book of Mark was written in 50 AD. That is 20 years or less than 20 years after the actual death. Legend did not have enough time to grow before the first documentation was there because if it was, the people that were still alive would have said, that's not true. That's not real. That didn't happen. But they didn't say that, and legend did not get a chance to grow because there wasn't a legend. It actually happened. Now, another theory is this, is people will say there was a hallucination, that that, the whole thing was a hallucination, and they feel like they really saw it, but they just hallucinated it. Now, here's the struggle with that, is that 500 people saw him at the same time and somehow had the same hallucination. Not only that, Thomas, Thomas, the doubter, the disciple, he touched Jesus' hands and he touched Jesus' side. And I don't know about you, but I don't know how much you have to smoke to actually touch a hallucination. I'm assuming it's a whole lot, but it's not possible that it was a hallucination. It is not possible. Another theory, and this one is a big one. This is one of the, in fact, this is like the most popular, but to me it's the most laughable. Um, And that is what is called uh, the swoon theory, or that he faked his death. That Jesus was up on the cross, and he just like, oh, I died, you know? And And then so they thought he died, and so they buried him, but he was still alive. Now, here's the problem with that. There's a handful of things that make this not possible. And one of them is the fact that the Romans were professional executors. They were really good at their job. And do you want to know why they were really good at their job? Because there was a law that literally said, you will die if you let a prisoner free. And if someone's on death row, and even if botching a a, a crucifixion, that's considered letting a prisoner free. Therefore, their lives were on the line. So they made sure that Jesus was dead. They made sure of it. They were professional executors. Another reason this is impossible is because of the spear that got stuck through Jesus' lungs. When Jesus was on the cross, all of a sudden a soldier at the very end came up and stabbed him to make sure he was dead and it went through the, um, his side up and through his lungs and probably into his heart. And here is what um, the John said. John was there and he said, blood and water flowed when that happened. And what's interesting about His detail that he puts in there is he says um, water flowed. Now, we would expect blood to flow, but it's not like he stabbed his bladder. And so what actually came? Where was the water that came from there? And so what's nuts is that when you are on a cross, you die of exhaustion or you die of suffocation. Here's what I mean by that is that what this is is even though I can't say it, it's still a reality. And that is that when someone is suffocating, that there is fluid that builds up around the heart. And we didn't know that John didn't know this back then, but we know this now. We know what this is. And so when the spear harpooned through Jesus' side, it went through and the water that came out was the fluid from that situation, from that that, that what happened. And John recorded it accurately. And he didn't know at the time that he, what that meant, but he recorded it accurately, and that means that Jesus was dead. It went through his lungs, probably into his heart, and Jesus died right there. He was dead prior before that. Here's another reason it's not possible. Uh, One is that he was encased, completely encased in sheets after he was died. And that's going to cause you to suffocate. Number two is that Roman soldiers did not break his legs. They broke the other two criminals on the cross. They broke his legs, their legs. And the reason they did was to expedite the process of suffocation. But they didn't break Jesus's because they knew he was already dead. Now, here's the other one let's just imagine that Jesus survived, right? Let's just say somehow he was able to hold his breath for a half an hour while they take him down off the cross, which I'm not sure how that's gonna happen. And then they put him in the grave. And he's two days in the grave and all of a sudden he wakes up and I'm there. He has been beaten for 20 hours, right? 20 hours straight. And what he says here is it says that Jesus, you know, that's what it would say is that he rolled the stone by himself and opened up the tomb from the inside, which is pretty dang near impossible. In fact, how those, those, tom- or those, those boulders go down is they roll and they fall into a slot. And you can't lift those. One person cannot lift that. And so it's saying Jesus, this wounded, beaten individual, rolled the stone away, right? And then he went to Emmaus. Do you know how far Emmaus is away from where he was executed? Seven miles. Saying that Jesus walked seven miles and saw these guys on the road. Um, I don't know about you, but if I break my toe, I don't think I could walk from here to over there without stumbling along the way. And he had nails stuck through his hands and feet. Not only that, he was beaten with whips, and he was on this cross, and he was, I mean, 20 hours, peoples, 20 hours. Jesus, it is not possible for him to fake his death. It is not possible. And so when you hear that, you just need to know that's not true. That's just a theory. It's exactly what it is. It's a theory, but it doesn't hold up. Probably the last one is this, is that other people will say that his body must have been stolen. Right? They obviously all couldn't find his body, but there's only three groups of people who would have been interested in his body or have access at that time. Three players in the story. One of them is the Romans, right? But they didn't steal the body, and here's why. is because we know through Pontius Pilate they wanted to keep the peace. And so stealing the body of a religious leader that was just publicly executed is probably not the best way to keep peace in Palestine. And so the Romans didn't steal the body. So what about the Jewish leaders? They were the other people. They had access to the tomb. They could have. Well, why would they steal the body? They are trying to hush this whole revolution down, this rumor that this resurrection is happening. They could have stopped it if they had taken the body and simply said, here he is. We found him. It's not true. But they couldn't do that. They were always trying to find where the body was. And so you think about it. Who are the people that possibly would have interest in stealing it? And you would think, oh, the disciples, the disciples they must have had interest in doing so. But they wouldn't, when you think about it, they wouldn't take it either. And here's why they wouldn't take it. First off, Jesus' teachings were all based on love and truth. And so you're going against your leader's teachings by starting the whole thing out and the whole movement off with a lie. And so not only that, if it was a lie, like I said before, they went to their graves with that lie. And people don't die for a lie. People don't die for a lie. Guys, there is so much evidence to the resurrection. There is witnesses. There is testimonies. There's an empty tomb. There's these theories that can easily be explained away just by documentation. There's people outside of the Bible that documented about this actually happening. And so what do we conclude? What is the verdict? What is the bottom line? Did the resurrection actually really happen? And I'm telling you, Yes, it did. In fact, in my opinion, a miracle is the only logical explanation. And miracles aren't logical by their nature. But if you look at all the evidence, right, it's the only thing that makes sense. It's the only thing that makes sense. A miracle is the only logical explanation. It's the only reasonable, plausible conclusion. There's just too much evidence. The resurrection really, 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 really happened. And if that's true, okay? This is crazy. If that's true, if that's the case, if the resurrection is more than a bedtime, once-upon-a-time story, the implications are incredible unbelievably incredible if the resurrection is actually a reality. And so here's the implications. The resurrection means Jesus is who he says he is. The resurrection means Jesus is who he says he is. It means he's telling the truth. And you want to know why I personally believe that Jesus is telling the truth? It's because anybody anybody who can predict their own death and resurrection and then actually pull it off, I'm going I'm to go with what that guy says. You know what I mean? His claim was proven by the resurrection, his big claim. So what did he say that he was? Who did he say that he was? Here it is. He said this. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. That means he's the author of life. He's the giver of life. He is the renewer of life. And he that believes in me, and so that means he who trusts in me, he who follows in me, he who puts faith in me, though he were dead, unfortunately, that's going to happen to all of us. Although he were dead, yet shall he or she live. And so what Jesus is talking about is he's saying, I am the author to eternal life. I'm talking about eternal life. I am the author of life. Life. Jesus is saying that you have this condition, and I am the cure for your condition. What is that condition? I'll tell you right now. It's called mortality. And every single one of us has that because every one of us will face death. Everyone who's ever lived has faced death. And we have a fancy word for it in the Bible. It's called sin. Right? That's what we call it because in the Bible it says sin leads to death. And so what is the cure to our sin problem? What is the cure to our mortality? And here's the thing. Here's the, you know the reason why we rail against or we push against death and nobody wants to die and, and we always put... You want to know why? Because we were never supposed to. In the very beginning, we were supposed to live forever. We were designed that way. It wasn't until sin entered into that equation that all of a sudden we became mortals where we were, had a death in front of us, and that's, it's in our DNA. That's why we don't like it, and so Jesus is coming, and he's saying, you know what? I am the cure. I didn't just think of this new philosophy. I didn't come up with this new idea. I personally am the cure to your condition, and he's saying, what I want you to do is I want you to reach out, and I want you to take a hold of me. I want you to take this cure. A lot of you know that I had a daughter named Magnolia. And this is what she looked like. And I unfortunately have to use her name in past tense because she's not around anymore. And the reason she's not around anymore is because she was diagnosed with a very, very rare form of brain cancer. It's called DIPG. It is so rare, it's one in 2.5 million to be able to grab that. That is ridiculously rare. And the problem with this type of brain cancer is that there is no cure. There's no no known cure. And so there's in fact, there is no recorded, since anybody's been recording this, any recorded survivors, survivors of this type of disease. And so when my daughter won the wrong lottery, when she got this disease, I remember sitting down and thinking to myself, what is out there? What type of cure? Because I'm telling you this, if there was a cure, and if you're a dad, you know this, if there was a cure, I would have found it. I would have gone there. If it was across the world, I would have gone there. I would have grabbed that cure. I would have invested. I did. I did all the investigating I could. And as a dad who wants to help, there was nothing I could do. I was helpless. I had nothing I could do. There was no cure on this planet. To what my daughter, what was her problem? Mortality. My daughter was going to die, and I needed to stop that from happening. And so what did I do? I'm a pastor. I prayed. I said, God, please heal my daughter. Please heal my daughter. Please heal my daughter. I prayed all the time, over and over again. And I thought, my gosh, is he not listening to me? But I knew better. I knew God was listening to me. And then I realized it was really a big aha moment for me when I was praying with God. And I, I felt like what he was telling me was, you know what, Jake? I've already answered your prayer. You're asking for a cure, and I've already provided it. You're just not grabbing the right thing. Because I wanted my daughter to live. And on this planet, I wanted her to live for 40 more years at least, because that's about all that I had left, I thought. And so 40 more years I want to spend with her. But what God said is he said, I know what you want. I know what you're praying for. But I've already answered your prayer because I am the cure for you spending time with your daughter for eternity I wanted 40 years. He gave me an eternity. And right now, my daughter, because she knew Jesus, she is in heaven at this place, and she's waiting for me. She's not sad because she's in heaven and she's with Jesus, but she's waiting for me. And why is she waiting for me? Because she's alive, and she had met the cure. And that is what the resurrection is. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. What is a resurrection? It is life. He's saying I am life, and I want to give you life. And because of the resurrection, pain doesn't have to be permanent. Now, that's funny. If you've been hanging around for a little while, we've been doing this pain series, and what have I been saying over and over and over again? Some pain is permanent. Well, I lied, okay? Because if you know Jesus, it doesn't have to be permanent. The moment you step into eternity, done. No more pain. No more tears. It's over. Pain doesn't have to be permanent. Peace is not only possible, it's plausible through the resurrection. The resurrection, and because of it, grief can be gone, grace can be given, suffering will be made silent, and hurt will happen no longer. Because of the resurrection, joy can be genuine, loneliness gets lost, and love, it gets to run loco, peoples. Because of the resurrection, we can know God, fear will be forgotten, death is defeated— and this is the best part: Heaven is now an option. And I use that word "option intentionally, because when we die, we don't all get to go to heaven. I know that's what they tell you in every movie that you've seen. You'll always get to jump to the Pearly Gates. That's not the case. That's not what it says in His word, and that's not what Jesus said. I think he's pretty good at telling the truth. He's the one who knows about life. And the only way to have eternal life, the only way to have life to the full is to have a relationship with Jesus. And that's, my friends, why I wanted to sit down and have coffee with you. It's because I wanted to tell you that if you give him a shot, because of the resurrection, you can have life. Not just life for the rest of your life, but life for eternity. Jesus is, because of the resurrection, He is, well, not even because the resurrection just proved what he already said, and that he is the resurrection and the life. And so I want to conclude on this thought, okay? This is where I want to end our time. No one believed Jesus died, right? Nobody believed that he was coming back, not one person. And you think, well, what about the disciples and all the teachings and all that kind of stuff? Did they know? They didn't know. And you know how we know that they didn't believe that? Is they went back to fishing. They went back home. They left. Nobody believed that Jesus was coming back. Nobody was standing outside of the tomb going 10, 9, 8, 7, because that would have been awesome. Boo! Here he comes. Stone rolls away. Nobody believed he was coming back. Not one person. But check out what happened when John and Peter, two of his closest disciples, heard that the tomb was empty. They didn't even assume that he had risen. At this point, they might have thought the body was stolen. Here's what it says. It says, so Peter and the other disciple. Now that's here, that's John. John will talk about himself in the third person. So he says, so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. (laughs) I love that. That is like, I think that detail, is it's one of my favorite in all the Bible that, that John for all of time wanted to tell every one of us that he is faster than Peter. <laughs> so cool. Then he, being John, bent over and looked in the strips of linen that were lying there, but did not go into the tomb. Why did he not go into the tomb? Because it's a tomb, and it's scary. But Peter, come on, Peter just goes right in. That's his personality. Peter, then Peter Simon came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. These are Jesus' burial garments. The cloth was lying there in its place, separate from the linen, like an empty shell. And then finally, all right, now John gets his courage up. He's ready to go. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, (laughs) still bragging, still bragging, he also went inside. And then here's the point here's what I love. He saw and he believed. He saw and he believed. Do you know when John, the man who spent three years with Jesus by his side, finally believed? It wasn't Jesus' teachings. It wasn't even the miracles. It definitely wasn't the crucifixion. It was the empty tomb. That is when John believed. That is when John believed. And I don't know about you and where you're at. And may you've been walking along and you've been with Jesus or you've been hanging out around him. But it took John, who spent three years with Jesus, to finally believe when he saw the empty tomb. That's the power of the resurrection. That is the power of the resurrection. When Christ died, think about this, his movement should have died with him. And why is that? Because most movements are based upon a philosophy or a new way of teaching. But what Jesus said is, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the resurrection. His whole teachings were centered around him. So when he died, there was really nothing for the disciples to take on and continue this movement. Right? So when Jesus died, his movement should have died with him. But yet, here we are, 2,000 years later, some 2 billion people, one-third of the world's population are celebrating, singing songs about some poor, obscure carpenter who lived in some small town, never wrote a book, never had a position of power, and never traveled more than 30 miles from his house. How is that possible? if not for the resurrection, if not for the resurrection. The resurrection is a reality. reality. It's the only plausible explanation. And so here, I want to talk to you directly. Maybe you're here, and you've been dancing around this faith thing. You've been dancing around whether or not you're going to be a Christian or you want to follow Christ. Maybe you're interested in him, but, man, it's time to stop playing It's time to stop playing because it just got real. It got real 2,000 years ago when he rose from the dead because of the reality of the resurrection. And maybe you're here and you're just, it's been kind of a pretending thing for you, right? You've been in the church, only you know that you really have not believed in this. That this is, I'm just kind of hoping, I'm going along because my husband likes this or my wife likes this. I'm just, you've kind of been pretending and going through the motions. Or maybe you're here and your arms are crossed, right? Maybe not on the outside, but maybe on the inside. And you're like, dude, I don't give a rip. I don't care about your Jesus. I don't, I don't give a crap. And I don't want to know, and I don't want to hear anymore. And I'm done with this little coffee date, and we're done. It's over. I don't, want to, I don't want to talk about it anymore. If any of those are you, here is the one question I have for all of you. And that is this. How will you respond to the reality of the resurrection? How will you respond to the reality of the resurrection? Because if this is true, if this really happened, which all evidence points to the fact that it did, then Jesus is who he says he is. And who is that? He is God. And you know what else he said? He loves you. And he did it for you. And he died for you. And the Father let the Son die for you. How crazy is that? It was the will of the Father that the Son would be crushed. That is a loving, I could never do that with my kids. That's how much God loves you. That is how much he loves you. And if it is true, which the resurrection is a reality, then how are you going to respond to that? How are you going to respond to Jesus? My hope is that you'd give him a shot. My hope is that you'd give him a go. That You would think about and maybe move that direction of becoming a follower of his, because I will tell you this. It has made all the difference, all the difference in my life. I am part of the proof of the resurrection, the reality of Christ's life in me. And anyone who knows Jesus, it's also another piece of evidence. It all seems kind of hazy up there, like magical. It's not. It's a reality to us, it's a reality to me. And so, how are you going to respond to the reality of the resurrection? Let's pray.